CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people with the experience and insights to impact our understanding of the world. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. And with the final presidential debate coming up, we decided that to really enhance our ability to understand what fine debating is all about, and most importantly, how to judge a winner, we would search for the best debater in the land. So I called one great university debate coach after another. I got a lot of names and the person I settled on. And of course, whether she is the best debater in the land is debatable, but she is one of the best. Her name is Ryan Beiermeister. She and her female debate partner, who recently graduated from Northwestern University, were practically invincible. Debate superheroes, you could call them. Ryan joins us now from our CNN studio in Washington. Ryan, welcome to CNN Profiles. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And to keep Ryan honest, because she is so persuasive, in New Haven, we're joined by the coach of the Yale University debate team, David Vincent Kimmel. David, thank you for joining us as well on CNN Profiles. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, David, Yale is, you tell me, the best debate team in the whole world, yes? Well, according to the International Debate Education Association, we're currently ranked number one with Sydney at number two and Oxford at number three, which is a very great honor. Let me ask you, if the best debaters in the world got together and debated the premise, Yale is the best debate team in the world, would you have a great debate over it? I think that case might be tight. It's just impossible to debate because it's so correct. (laughs) Okay, but we're going to give you credit now because you're on CNN Profiles, (laughs) and we would never pick anybody less than the coach of the best debate team in the world. But we're going to start with Ryan, because Ryan, how old are you now? I'm 22. You're 22, and what, Mm -hmm. what award was it that you won that really put you in that top echelon of debaters? Um, well, I would say there are pretty, you know, there are two, two big things. My partner and I do policy debate, and last year my partner and I won six tournaments in the regular season, and I think the last time anyone won close to that was in the 80s, a Dartmouth team won um, four or five. So that put us in the position to win what's called the Copeland Award in policy debate, where we were ranked by all of the coaches across the field as the number one team throughout the regular season, and that's out of hundreds of schools and, and debaters. And then at the national championships for policy debate uh, this year, it's called the NDT, the National Debate Tournament. Uh, I was given the award of the top speaker prize, which meant that I was the number one individual speaker during the tournament, um, which was really unique and cool for me because I'm only the fourth woman since the tournament began in the 1940s to win that award. So there have been 60-something men who've been top speaker of the NDT, and I'm the fourth woman Um, And actually, it was consecutive for Northwestern. The third woman was last year in 2011. So we've had a really kind of awesome moment um, for women in debate uh, to win such a really incredibly prestigious award. How did you get to where you got? Were you always a great debater or did you come from a different background? I I I would say that I always had the natural the natural talent that I think someone needs to be good at debate. You know, I could always talk. I could always think off the top of my head. I could always sound impassioned. Um, But I always tell people that to be a good debater, especially in, in college debate, you have to put a ton of work into it. I mean, our our debates are entirely research-based. We, we use pieces of evidence that we have um, extracted from academic journals or news, um, and that is really the backbone and the foundation of all of our debates. So if you don't have a solid versing in what you're talking about, it becomes incredibly difficult to sound persuasive. Um, so it took me a while to kind of realize that, to realize that, you know, like I, I couldn't coast through things like I did in high school and that the, 
the real meat of being a great debater is hunkering down and spending an extra three hours a night after you finish your homework um, staring at a computer screen, reading about something obscure in order to sound really versed and proficient on it in an actual debate round. Um, so I think that was kind of the learning curve that really pushed me over the edge and was what really eventually made me kind of combine the natural speaking talent um, with the kind of work ethic that is totally necessary to be at the top of our activity. So, so as the father of three young children, this idea that you didn't always have the work ethic is very comforting to me. When, <laughs> yeah. when did you get the work ethic? Well, I'll t- I, you know, I think that um, people change the most when they kind of have a really big point of failure. And like I said, I was really good at high school debate. I thought I was kind of, you know, I had a bunch of swag about my debatability. And then I go to Northwestern, which is the best, in my opinion, the best debate school in the country. We've won 14 national championships. And um, and I was completely over my head. You know, I had no idea how hard college debaters worked. I wasn't ready to do that right after I'd left my family and gone away to college and gone so far away. And everything was new to me. And I, I really kind of fell on my face in debate. And it was embarrassing and totally, um, it was totally uncomfortable for me. Um, and, I, and I was so fortunate to work with someone who literally changed my life, um, our coach, Daniel Fitzmaier, um, because he really kind of saw that total point of failure for me and saw an opportunity to kind of teach me um, work ethic, the kind of ethic of excellence is what he calls it, that excellence is a habit. It's like, you know, you're not excellent when you win a trophy. You're excellent when you're doing small things every day that kind of build towards being a better person and being a more diligent person. So the three hours a night that you do every night, that is habitual excellence. You know, getting a trophy randomly, you know, getting really high, the high point, that's not really excellence. It's more the kind of understated habitual things that you do. And he really ingrained that in me and and really changed me. And this total pivot happened where my debate career was kind of fizzling out, and then it turns out that <laughs> my senior year, we had one of the best seasons of all time, um, and I was top speaker of the NDT. So there's this, co- there's this really interesting kind of um, trajectory for me in debate. So, so give me a sense of how many three-hour nights, how many days in a row, how many months in a row it took for you to really reach that level where you were in the zone. Well, so the season, I mean, last year was kind of the big season for me, and the season builds towards the national championship. Um, so there's a big, big um, thrust of work that happens at the very beginning of the year. So we worked from kind of the end of July until the end of September. I, we worked, our whole team did, almost every, every single day. Uh, I, I have never slept less in my life. I've never worked harder in my life. I want to stop. Um, on, I want to stop on that point because we mm-hmm. you know, all the sleep studies that come out, and we get a lot of them at CNN and our medical unit, keep on telling us that sleep is essential for proper brain functioning. I keep on telling this to my kids. It is very hard when you have a lot of homework. I'm listening to your workload. Does that not diminish your performance when you're working that many hours a day and going on how many hours of sleep a night it, was it? Um, probably like four or five. (laughs) How can you be a great debater on four or five hours sleep a night? Well, I'll tell you, we have, we have stories about that and you're absolutely right. You know, that's kind of the, the schedule I think in the lead up to the tournament, but our coaches were always very adamant 
that right before the tournament, you have to get 10 hours of sleep at night. You have to go to bed. It's not worth it. They every We know that how important sleep is, especially because the way the tournaments work, you know, it's three days of waking up at 5 a.m., going to bed at 11 a.m., and debating all day. It's the most exhaust. I mean, like, I would get to the finals of a tournament on Monday. It's, you know, it goes Friday, Saturday, or sorry, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And I would get be in the finals of a tournament at 11 p.m. on a Monday, and I literally couldn't see. Like, I would not be able to, like, visually see anything in front of me because I was so exhausted. Um, and so it's a big, it's a hard, it's a really hard balance to strike. We try really hard before the tournament, right before, to get a lot of sleep. Um, but it, it is a total casualty. I mean, one of one of the few tournaments that my partner and I did poorly at last year um, was because we worked too hard right before the tournament. We were so exhausted um, that it was just kind of a meltdown for us as a really low point in the year, a low point in a season with a ton of high points. But it was entirely attributable to just pushing ourselves too hard and not not getting the rest that we needed in order for our brains to work. David Vincent Kimmel, head of the Yale Debate Association, you must be listening to Ryan and saying, ah, why didn't we recruit her? <laughs> she sounds like a very hardworking person and obviously a phenomenal speaker by the, you know, by the sound of those eloquent responses. So it's a shame that you weren't on the Yale team. <laughs> And, and, and so tell me, what are you what are you hearing in her? And and if you can also now broaden this out, you know, for those of us who are going to be watching and many of us are going to be watching the presidential debate coming up, the last one. Uh, what is it that we should we be looking for and listening for to know who's winning or at least who deserves to win by traditional debate standards? What what are, what are classic metrics of a successful debate performance? David Kimmel. Well, that, that's a very interesting question and a complicated one, but I'll try to answer it as simply as I can. I think that in a traditional college debate, in a competitive round, judges will often look toward the development of arguments and clash to decide who wins or loses. That is, who responded best to the arguments on the table who had the most imaginative responses and who was listening most carefully. It would be a rather poor round if the issue came down to secondary qualities, like who sounded more confident, who was a little bit more polished, who seemed more energized and focused. Now, the ironic thing about that is that the presidential debate, which is so much more important, really is bound, I think, at least in the popular press where judgment really matters, to those secondary kind of characteristics. And the reason is, is that unlike in a college round, you don't really see the development of original arguments. There's no sense of imagination. There's no sense of improvisation. You really have candidates who have memorized talking points that then listen to the questions and try to twist their answers, which are already memorized, to what was asked. So as a result of that, you have many examples of appeal to authority, many statistics, many allegations of truth that nobody really you know, relies upon or really believes too much in, and you have recourse in the popular imagination to just saying who seemed a little bit more stylistically sound, who seemed more energized, who seemed more confident giving those talking points. And to me, that's a major problem. And yet, Ryan, when I was speaking to you earlier, you said it, it is important to know who your judges are, in this case, it's probably the independent voters, who your judges are, and to some degree, to get them to like you. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I completely agree with David's analysis. I thought it was a really um, interesting division. Um, but I also think that it does matter. The, the style does matter to a certain extent. It, it, it's just subconscious. We're all human beings. We When we decide a debate round, we're not objective kind of 
blank deciders. We're, we're people who are subject to kind of psychological influence and we're subject to liking people and not liking other people. So while I don't think it, in college debate it's necessarily like the kind of you know, first thing that judges go to, I do think that there are very subliminal things that debaters um, can do in order to persuade their audience. And, and a lot of that has to do with being likable or being funny or showing passion. You can even be aggressive, I think, and still maintain a really good ethos in a debate as long as you're kind of controlling and dominating the debate and kind of giving presence that that overcomes your opponent. Domination. So there's a word, David, that you used, mm-hmm. clash. You know, we, we often speak about negative campaigning and the negativity in politics, but this word clash that doesn't necessarily imply negativity, right? Can you describe for us what a great clash is and why it's in in the viewer's interest, in the audience's interest, in the judge's interest to have a great clash? I think that clash has to deal with two arguments coming head to head and through dialectic, figuring out what is more persuasive. So let me give you an example. By the way, di- is a- dialectic is a term I we used to use in college all the time. I've been out of college for too many years. How would you describe the word dialectic? Let's say in the context of debate, we're talking about opposing arguments coming head to head, and it results in a kind of effort to figure out where the truth lies in a shade of gray, because it's very rare that the truth is black or white. And I think it's only through debate and through the clash of conflicting arguments that we can actually figure out what is the truth. We have to look at both perspectives and figure out what is true on either side. Now, when it comes to clash, let me give you an example. There was a debate about what would happen to annual per capita death rates in the United States if commercial air Airlines all hired an additional co-pilot. Now, in that debate round, one person said there will be less deaths per year because there's going to be more oversight now with an additional co-pilot. But one of my students, a very talented one, in fact, said that's not true. In general, commercial flights are not very dangerous. And if we had to hire an additional co-pilot, that would mandate higher ticket prices. Higher ticket prices would mean more people would drive instead of taking the plane, and ergo more people would die. Now, those two arguments both have you know, some validity, but it's really the second argument that goes a little bit deeper and is able to imaginatively create a scenario that seems more persuasive. And I think that the real judges of a presidential debate round, it's not really the audience who is often bored by what they're seeing. It's actually the media. It's, it's the newscasters that are watching the debate that really have to be persuaded because if they're persuaded, that will influence how they will talk about the debate on air and what the consensus will be about who won or lost. And with that being said, I I think that candidates could definitely charm the media better if they did actually listen and if there was a little bit more engagement. Because while I agree with Ryan that a professional demeanor and a sense of energy and tempo are important, it's also important to answer the question at hand in a responsible way. And it doesn't matter to me how polished or how energized you seem. It's much more important to listen and to engage. And that's what I'm really looking for as a judge in these debates. And I think that the debates could be more influential if we change the format a little bit, I think that it would lead to better discussion. You're listening to CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder, and we're speaking with debate champion and recent Northwestern grad Ryan Beiermeister, as well as the coach of the Yale debate team, David Kimmel. Let me ask you something else uh, in terms of how one debater responds to the other. My understanding in, the cl- in your classic debate world is when one participant Here's another, make an argument that he or she disagrees with. Don't diminish that argument. Actually elevate it to some degree. Explain that to me. 
I think that that's an excellent point. I think that many times when we watch these debates, there is this clash between truth versus politics in the sense that everybody is presenting a version of the truth that is most amenable to their own side. I think that the best debaters really listen to the other side and will deal with arguments in all of their nuances and won't resort to simplifying the issue or responding in a way that is inadequate because in the long term, when the popular press evaluates those kinds of answers, when people actually take the time to research the statistics, they'll find that it wasn't that persuasive. So you might have a temporary victory where it seems during the debate that you had a snappy answer. But if you don't fully consider all of the nuances of the other side, it's going to seem simplistic in the long term what you say. So, and so that will be a problem. So there's an, in previous discussions we had uh, uh, before we got on air, you, you were you, uh, both of you have mentioned this term straw man. And uh, explain to me, actually, Ryan, why don't you explain to me what is a straw man in a debate setting? And why is it a bad thing to create a straw man? So I think it's very similar to what uh, David was just describing. A straw man is the kind of characterization of someone else's argument in a way that diminishes it or belittles it or, um, you know, dismisses it as um, not a very sound argument. And it's exactly what we were just talking about. When you kind of characterize an argument without giving it its full weight, you're not going to respond to it with your full weight. You know what I mean? Like you, if, if there are like very detailed reasons that the, your opponent is like putting out there for, for an argument and you have characterized and lumped that argument into something very vague and very dismissed, you're going to miss the very five details that they have kind of elaborated on and you're not going to respond to those in a detailed way um, in return. So kind of that dismissiveness in debates can be really deadly. It can be, it can be a reason you lose. If you, if you kind of personally even think an argument is dumb and you're not willing to respond to it, that, that is a really kind of dangerous spot to be in um, if the judges are being responsive to kind of the more nuanced arguments that they're making so you on both, their side. So you both agree that you want to treat the other side's arguments with respect oh, yeah. before you rip it to shreds. Absolutely, Definitely. because I mean, half of the audience for the debate believes that the other side, after all. So why would you want to alienate half of your audience by launching into a speech that doesn't respect their perspective? I mean, I, college debaters lose all the time based off just thinking another person's argument is dumb or something like that, and that it's not worth their time to respond to it. That is a classic way that kind of underdogs in college debate beat more experienced teams, because those experienced teams will blow something off because they think that they have swag and presence and, you know, that they don't, you know, can beat up on the younger team, and then bam, you know, a loss early in the tournament. That happened to me last year. Wow. So, so, so this gets to the role of, uh, and this is a biblical value, goes back far, the role of humility, right? It's important to be humble, and yet at the same time, you debaters better be very confident. How do you draw that line between humility and confidence? I think that it's a matter of performance. You could ask similar questions to a stand-up comic. How do you know when to push the envelope? How do you know when to take a strategic pause? So it is important to have a sense of modesty, but also you want to have a sense of confidence that you are bringing something to the table that your opponent doesn't understand or is not articulating. And I think that with a sense of confidence that what you're saying is correct, it's possible to kind of uh, walk that line. And final question, Ryan, uh, where, where did you get your skills? Well, so the, one of the reasons I really loved debate in college is because it was kind of an outlet for confidence almost. You know, like all of the insecurities that plague young adolescents or whatever kind of melted for me in debate rounds because I kind of put on this character. I put on this performer, this incredibly confident, this incredibly fiery person um, that wasn't willing to, you know, 
take crap from anyone who was really kind of intense and aggressive. And I got to kind of display my intellectual talents, my quick thinking. And that was kind of the reason I was so hooked to it is because I had this person that I could play where all of a sudden everything melted and I was kind of in control. I was in front of 50 people in an audience and I was doing something that I loved and really enjoyed and kind of proving myself. Um, so that's kind of, in, you know, that's that's the confidence thing. That is the performance thing. Debate is a performance. It is not, you know, you're not yourself when you get on a debate stage. You are a confident, smooth, intelligent, intellectual, and you are ready to just beat your opponents um, in front of a bunch of people. You can be humble with decisions that you make during the debate, but what you project is a performance. It is the great debater. It is someone who's in complete control, and that's what I loved um, about it. Any any closing thoughts that you'd like to offer? Uh, especially, you know what, especially because, look, my perspective very much is not just as a journalist but as a father, and I have three young children, and they range in age from 9 to 14, and I think they're all going to be watching the next debate. If you can put yourselves in their shoes, how should a child watch this debate? What should they be looking for that they can wear? They can really appreciate what's going on because let's face it. I mean, I know my children and a lot of other children, they are great debaters, especially when the subject is an iPod or an iPad. As it is and as the debates stand, I think that the younger generation should look toward those speakers that inspire them. And if they're not feeling inspired to want more out of politics, there are so few futuristic topics addressed in these debates. There's nothing about the future nature of technology, nothing about the development of new and interesting, you know, innovative medical technologies, nothing about to be really out there in the long term, the development of virtual reality and sort of things like that. Futuristic concerns about how we can proactively create an America that is really pioneering for the world. That's what the younger generation should really be interested in, people that are looking toward their future. But as it is, I think that it's a little bit more difficult, and the only thing that we can really hope for, given the format as it currently is, is at least for these candidates to respond to each other. The younger generation should appreciate responsiveness, people overtly listening to each other and answering the questions at hand. So people should be on the lookout for responsiveness, for alertness, but also to the development of arguments. And people should listen carefully to the news and think for themselves who they think won or lost, because sometimes the media is a harsher judge than impartial reality might have been. And Ryan, last comment from you on the importance of the art of listening at all ages. Well, I, I just kind of want to say that, so like, debate changed my life. And so any, any parent and any child who's watching the debate, if they can kind of step back for a moment and think about the act of debating and how incredible that is and what an opportunity there is in high schools and in colleges to experience that, that would mean a lot to me and that, that would make um, this incredibly, incredibly worth, worthwhile for me. But the art of listening is the, the way, it's the only way to achieve anything in debate. You cannot be dismissive of someone. You cannot not clash with arguments. And the real, the talking points kind of thing that's already been brought up about Romney and Obama, about the laundry list that they list off without engaging each other, is incredibly bad debating. And it's not, it's, it's not only incredibly bad debating, it's an incredibly bad life practice. You don't get anywhere in life if you can't listen to other people. You don't get anywhere if you're, you know, zoning out and not taking the things that people say seriously in order to respond and deal with them. And it's an incredible life skill that that debate has taught me to listen to other people and to engage with other people and to, you know, evaluate each argument that anyone makes in kind of like a vacuum to kind of be unbiased about that argument, to look at it from all sides, to not 
kind of get rid of ideological attachment to things and evaluate arguments for the sake of their argumentative power. Um, and that's an incredible thing about debate. And if any, you know, if, if kids or, or parents could, could think about debates like that as arguments standing on their own and how do they match up against the other side's arguments, I think that that would be incredibly powerful. And I think it could diminish a lot of the sort of ideological attachment um, to ideas that we have. And that would be powerful to me. Ryan Beiermeister, a debate champion from Northwestern University, uh, now on your own with a with an independent job out of college, and David oh, yeah. Vincent David Vincent Kimmel, uh, head of the Yale Debate Association, coach uh, of the of the top team in the world, arguably. Uh, I th- I really enjoyed listening to both of you, and and we thank you both for joining us on CNN Profiles. Thanks, thank you Mike. so much. Remember, you can listen to CNN Profiles on CNN.com slash Soundwaves or on the apps SoundCloud or Stitcher. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just one request. If you like us, share us. That's CNN Profiles.